0: This morning we will continue our celebration of Advent, that is, the celebration of the coming, the appearance of Christ. And particularly, our celebration of Advent, our church is looking at the person of Christ in different aspects of who Jesus is. So, last week we looked at the hypostatic union, that is, the fact that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Today is Jesus, and the fact that Jesus is prophet. Jesus is prophet. So a prophet is a messenger of God. A prophet brings the truth about who God is and what he desires, what he commands of people to people. A prophet represents God to man. Two things that are true of prophets in terms of what marked in the Bible and what marks, but what marked... A true prophet. One, if they were predicting future events, those events had to come true. Uh, If they didn't, they were called, marked, a false prophet, and consequences would ensue. That's number one. Number two would be, in general, uh, what the prophet spoke could not contradict God's Word and could not contradict who God was in terms of his character two basic tests. Um, think about the Galatian church in the New Testament. Uh, Paul calls the Judaizers basically false teachers. Why? Because their message contradicted what the message of the gospel was. Therefore, they failed that test, kind of a New Testament version of false prophets. So prophet, messenger of God, represents God to the people. Old Testament, prophets, all throughout. So, the good news is, the good news is in our culture, praise the Lord, there is still room for Jesus. We still have room. It's great. Still room for Jesus. We still have a seat at the table as the church. It's great. So, our culture still allows Jesus to have a seat at the table. And what does our culture want in Jesus as prophet Who is Jesus' prophet according to our our culture? Well, Jesus is one, and a true prophet we might say, according to our culture, is one that in Christianity would have good manners, mild tone, well-spoken, open-minded, non-dogmatic, kept in the right context, uncontroversial, affirming, and submissive. So if we kind of dumbed all those down or summed them up, you know, Jesus, what's Christ-like? Well, being Christ-like is you have a good tone, you're acceptable, acceptable and non-controversial. The problem with that idea of Christ is that though he is some of those things in some measure, that is not who Jesus truly is. And that, therein lies the problem. That's where the problem lies in terms of what is an acceptable Jesus and the true Jesus. The reason I say those things is Jesus and the Bible is clear to beware false prophets, to beware false teaching. Watch out for it. I say those things because I want to make a point to you guys, and that is when thinking about what is true teaching— What has God truly said? Do not let, and I say this for a reason, do not let non-Christians or Christians whose lives and teaching contradict what is clear in Scripture define true religion for you. Do not let non-Christians define the ways of the game, the rules. And the church has been doing that for far too long. So beware false prophets. What's true of false prophets? Well, three words, I guess. Sneaky, slippery, and deceptive. Sneaky, slippery, and deceptive. Um, one, One way to think about a false teaching or a false prophet is the serpent in the Garden of Eden. One important reality to remember about the serpent the one who deceived Adam and Eve, led them into sin, was the serpent did not pull a Job's wife and say, curse God and die. That is not the way that he went about getting them to sin. If he had said, curse God and die, perhaps they would have realized, wait a second, wait, no, we're not supposed to do that. No. No. If you think back, in some sense, the serpent was playing the game of, hey, no, here's what God really wants. I'm on God's team. God wants you to know good and evil, right? And so false prophets, oftentimes, are going to be pretending or confessing, professing to be members of God's club, to be of one of the people of God. And how do false prophets, I would argue, false teachers, how do they work today in our current culture? How do false prophets work today? Well, I said sneaky, slippery, deceptive. One way that I think we must be awake to as the church today is bewaring one of the primary tactics of false teachers and that is guilt manipulation. Guilt manipulation. And what do I mean by guilt manipulation? Well. How many times have you ever heard someone who you think perhaps their life doesn't really reflect Christ, or they don't even profess Christ, and yet they're definitely not shy to say such and such a thing you did wasn't Christ-like? Or how about the phrase, you know, those Christians, always known what they're against rather than what they're for, or how about a young believer who's, Passionate and maybe, I don't know, you don't share their passion or whatever. That guy, that reformed guy, just a cage stager. Or a modern one, which I find just to be an evangelical blank check to do whatever you want to do apparently as well, that wouldn't be loving your neighbor. Are all those things true? Should we be Christ-like? Yes. Should Christians be known what we are for rather than just what we are against? Of course. Um, Is there something in the Reformed world that's kind of a cage stage when you've understood more about God's sovereignty and his determination of things that were to come, all those sorts of things? Yes. Should we love our neighbor? Of course. But all of those things have to be defined by the law of God. And it is easy to deceive a mature Christian or immature Christian or whatever into doing things that aren't truly Christ-like by holding things over their conscience. That's not Christ-like. It wasn't, it wasn't Christ-like for you to confront that guy about sleeping with his girlfriend. It wasn't the right time. Well, I mean, it probably was the right time, right? But you can see how easily it'd be to squelch someone's passion. So false prophets often manipulate Christians. They manipulate Christians into a certain box, and that box, I would argue, is that box that I described earlier, only thinking of Jesus as having the good manners, the mild tone, well-spoken, totally always acceptable, submissive, and kept in the right context. And what does that ensure? If that is truly the box that the church must stay in that Jesus must stay in if that's sort of our box for him what does that ensure about the church? Well I would argue it ensures that the church will have no impact on the surrounding world. An acceptable, palatable constantly pleasing the world around it Jesus that's will make no impact. Why? Well one If Jesus is always those things, then believers, I would argue, will not be sanctified, because they will not often be confronted with the deep truths of God's word. Uh, We, they, whatever, will not be confronted with our own sin, if Jesus is always just these things. So sanctification will suffer the growth of the body. Evangelism will absolutely suffer because unbelievers, in order to know the good news of what Christ has done, that is living a perfect life and dying in the place of sinners, in order to know that good news, they must first know the bad news of the natural standing before God, which is rebellion and under his judgment. And rebellion that Is rebellion done in actual acts of living against God and his character? But if Christians are constantly kept in a certain box and we're taught in some way to stay in that certain box, it is a great way to ensure that the church will remain stagnant. And is it possible that we've been lulled to sleep at times as the church in America? False prophets are sneaky, slippery, and deceptive. And I think that Satan would like nothing more than for the church to be asleep, constantly affirming, a little bit lax, maybe lacking a little bit of zeal. Something to absolutely think about, correct? So if that is what is... False prophet land, we'll say. Well, then let's talk about the true prophet. That's Christ. Our text today is going to be John 8 31 through 33. John writes about Jesus, 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? So if there were false prophets, and that, those are, that's what's unnecessary, we don't want that. Let's assume that God actually knows what is necessary in a prophet. And when I say necessary, I mean a prophet for us. So what is necessary for us in a prophet? What did Jesus, does Jesus, accomplish as someone who brought the truth of God? A few things At the beginning here, a basic reality about Christ is, in him being prophet, Christ pierced through the confusion, the lies, and the half-truths of this life and proclaimed the will of God to the people. So Christ, unlike false prophets, he pierced through the confusion, lies, and half-truths and proclaimed the true will of God to people. Christ still reigns as prophet through the whole Scripture. We now have Scripture. And unlike the other even true prophets, because there are plenty of true prophets that we read from and about in Scripture, we need to look no further than Jesus himself. It separates Christ from prophets before him in that Christ are saying, Prophets beforehand are saying, look ahead, look ahead, look ahead, look ahead. Christ says, I am God. I am life. I am the answer. Look to me. Christ is the prophet of prophets. And we need that prophet of prophets. If we are kept and believe we should be kept and simply that box I talked about earlier, we'll have a Christ, a lion that's toothless, a shepherd that's worthless, and a king that is powerless. And we do not want those things. God knows what's necessary, so what is necessary for us? One, what did Christ accomplish? What do we need? As prophet, Christ gives the truth of God. And if you're taking notes, that's kind of number one, right? Christ gives the truth of God. Well, primarily, why have we been created? And that is, well, we've been created to honor our maker. God is the point of all of this. So if for no other reason, then we get God himself. But why else do we need the truth? Well, if we know about sin, then we know that living in the truth and living in the light is not our natural way of things. Not at all. We need the truth of God to know the truth about sin. But on a very practical level as well, which includes both those first two things, we need the truth of God because things in this life, things in our day-to-day life, get muddy very quick. Life and how to live and what is good and what is evil, they get muddy very quick. Some examples um, in Scripture. Scripture. Kind of make you think about that. Moses goes up to receive the law. He comes back down and the people of Israel, led by Aaron, are worshiping a golden calf. You think about that. I like to think about that in some perspective from Moses' perspective. Imagining coming back to your people and I don't know what you would expect, but probably the last thing would be, oh, Okay, so they fashioned this out of gold and a fire and so Aaron, you know, what happened? Well, out came this calf, as Aaron says. (laughs) It's funny but very sad, but in a way it's kind of funny because, well, it's an example of that gotten muddy quick. And when I say muddy, you know, we like clear water, clean water. Well, we know we're drinking it and it's fine, except if you're in Richmond a couple days ago. But you can also see what's true. Hey, okay, that was funny, apparently. Uh, so muddy, when I say muddy, I mean unclear. Things got really messed up really quick. Like, if you're Moses, how do you, how do you go to this? Of all things, you're wor- worshiping a golden calf, and your excuse is, oh, it just kind of popped out. Um, if you're Moses, you're kind of going back to the drawing board thinking, oh my goodness, okay. I got to relook at the playbook here. Um, the people of Israel in general, things got muddy with them quickly and very often and very consistently. That was an example with Aaron. Um, but really, through the entire time of the kings, for the most part, before that, the judges, thinking about any of the prophets, most of the time there are a very small few, a remnant we might say, as the scripture talks about, that were really faithful and held to the truth. And then there are those who quickly were led astray. Um, One example that comes to mind as well is uh, the spies who went to go look at the land of Canaan. I believe it was Caleb and Joshua that held firm, said, we can do this. And then most of the spies, though, were saying, whoa, whoa, they're huge. We can't do it. Like, oh, my goodness. Moses knew the truth, and that was, well, God has got us. He is going to lead us. He's promised us. A couple of guys knew that, but for most of them, they forgot that like that because of what was in front of them. Situations got confused like that. And one I mentioned earlier. Things get muddy quick. The early church, specifically the Galatian church. I think, uh, if not the most, maybe one of the most harsh letters Paul wrote in terms of his tone was to the church, the Galatian church. Um, one of the things he says is, You foolish Galatians. Essentially, I'm astounded. You guys were on a firm foundation and all of a sudden, it's not like you're believing a small thing that's kind of here and there. Like you are almost trusting in a different gospel. You're right on the edge. A different gospel has been presented and you're really close to completely falling off the ship, 100%. And this was a church that had been led by Paul. That shows, one, the power the deceptiveness, the quick-spreading nature of sin, but also the need of the truth of God. And the people in Jesus' day were no different, being led by the confusing and hypocritical teaching of the Pharisees and being under that burdensome yoke, as it were. And that applies to our lives. We need the truth of God. We need, we needed the truth of God. Why? Well, because if we assume that it's true, that in and of our very nature, apart from Christ, we are sinful and under God's judgment and on a highway to hell, and we need God's provision in Christ, we need to know the content of what it is that saves us. Because the content isn't simply just the word Jesus, 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 Jesus. A hundred times, it is his true person, character, and work that saves. Right? We need the truth because apart from him, we're still in the murky water. We need the future told. The people needed the future told. Number two, what's necessary in a prophet? The future is told. Well, a couple questions about the future, perhaps. Where is history going? What's the point? And based on that, what should my life be about? Well, we know that history is going ultimately to the final judgment and a new heavens and new earth established by Christ. So what should our life be about? Well, I think naturally we would say, well, it should be whatever is glorifying to God in Christ. Christ, in terms of just a couple examples of him explaining what things were about, what was to come to his disciples, they're worried. He's about to leave. He says, well, I will send a helper to you who will be with you. He promised them the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, because it was true, one. But two, because it was a massive comfort to them who felt abandoned at the time or didn't fully understand the full picture He revealed the future. Don't worry. I've got you. This is going to come. It's going to be all right. We need the future told. Well, what do we know? If you're in Christ, what do you know about your future? Well, you know, one, that there will be eventually no more sickness, mourning, or pain. You know, two, that there will be no more, we could say, enemies, those who persecute you. Three, you know one day you will actually be with God in fullness. You'll have a glorified body. There's so much of the future, obviously, the Bible also speaks about, but apart from a prophet coming and explaining, here's the deal, here's what to look for, history is going somewhere, then where is any of the hope? Think about if Christ never mentioned the fact that he would return or we weren't, it wasn't revealed in Scripture that one day there would be a final judgment. Think about what a difference that would make, let's just say on a Sunday, or in our worship. I mean, would we really have a, a secure like singing or a secure giving or any kind of security. And, well, you know, he, he accomplished these things, but then he never really said anything about what would happen after. Right? I've said this before, I think, maybe at The Way, maybe it's here, I can't remember, but it is fascinating and amazing. As believers, we actually know the end of the story. We don't have the full details because some of it's above us, but Christ has painted that picture. We know what's going to happen That's what a prophet does, and like I said earlier, a true prophet, when he says this is going to happen, it must come true. And just like Christ predicted that he would be killed, that the chief elders and priests would take his life, and he would then come back to life on the third day, and that came true, we can take his promises about the future to the bank. We need those future promises. What else is necessary? The prophetic work of Christ. You need someone to confront you, right? A prophet confronts. The example that comes to my mind is King David. In terms of Israel's kings, Probably the greatest king, the example and type of King Jesus. But even David, apart from a confrontation, if you look at, I believe it's 2 Samuel, it looked like he was sinning and was not going to stop sinning. Adultery, arranged for the murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah, accomplished that. And really, there was nothing in his way to keep, keep going because if you've ever experienced, well, you have, <laughs> sin and lying, until something is done about that, until repentance occurs, it keeps growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. There's a reason that the Bible talks about that so often. So what happened in David's life? Well, God sent, that's what the text said, The Lord sent Nathan to David, and David was a great king, and we could say, legitimately a great man of God. But without that confrontation, Nathan's saying, you are that man, you've sinned, nothing would have happened. Another example of a prophetic confronting in Scripture, at least in that sort of type, would be... An apostle, but Peter in Acts 2. Acts chapter 2, Peter confronts Jewish people. You were the one who crucified Jesus. What a harsh truth. And what, do they, what does it say? They were cut to the heart. What should we do? That was their response upon being confronted. What should we do? Repent and be baptized. That was his response. But why did they... Why did they act in that way? Why did they respond in that way? Well, because the truth pierced their heart, we could say. It was an actual sharp blade that got to them, right? So Peter probably could have formulated his message in multiple ways, right? But apart from a very hard and real truth about sin, confronting those people, they wouldn't have known what to turn away from. They wouldn't have known why they've really done anything wrong, right? So what's one lesson here? Well, a dulled blade doesn't cut, right? So a prophet without any kind of confrontational bone, we could say, in his body will not be doing the work of God. And do not hear me please incorrectly. What I'm not saying when I talk about the box that a lot of the world wants us to stay in and false prophets, when I'm, what I'm not saying when I talk about true prophets is a prophet must be a provocator for provocator's sake, provoking. No. A prophet has a true aim. Jesus had a true aim, to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus' true aim was to glorify the Father. And though we are not technical biblical prophets, we can, in some sense, follow in that reality of having a life that speaks prophetically to God's glory. That'd be a great rule of thumb for a believer. I don't want a dulled blade, because that will be worthless and will not allow anyone to hear the true harsh reality of sin in order to actually know the true wonderful reality of Christ. But I also don't want to be an old man on his you know, front lawn. Um, get off my lawn. Just provoking for provoking's sake. There's not a reason to be mean-spirited. Um, it's about the definite aim. And you and I, in terms of the prophetic work of Jesus, we need to be confronted. I mentioned earlier evangelism but also sanctification. And if you're in Christ, you are being sanctified. You are sanctified and you are being sanctified. If you think in your Christian life, and perhaps we're all made differently, and so this might local mileage might vary, but I know for me uh, a lot of times of growth for me, have been when I've been legitimately confronted with sin in a gentle but direct manner. I've told this story to some people before, but I remember in college, um, I used to watch Before Christ and even after I became a Christian, kind of early on, I used to watch watch a certain animated show and this animated show was not Looney Tunes or like a kid's cartoon. It was kind of one you'd find on a major network, and one thing those shows on major networks that are cartoons are not often is, you know, they're not really great for praise and worship. They're not all that, you know, glorifying to God um, in the sense that they completely hate God and mock Him constantly. So um, I mentioned to someone who I was with, wow, you know, like this show is it's pretty great, and, you know, this friend of mine, who I still know today, asked me, "Do you think that, do you think that helps your testimony? Do you think that actually conforms to living a life that honors Christ?" And that's those are the words he said. And oh, at the time, I was just so, so mad. <laughs> I'll say it that way. Walked away. Uh, it was a summer that I was in Gatlinburg, actually, with crew. But uh, yeah, I mean, later on, I thanked the guy, and. Am I saying that watching that show particularly for every last person is sinful? Maybe not, but I know for me I gained nothing from it. I saw Jesus cartoonized and actually depicted in a mocking way. I saw the Father drawn sort of in a cartoon way being mocked like multiple times in this show. And it was loving to be confronted and my life in that small area has been nothing but better for that because I've been led closer to Christ. I haven't, there's been a little less poison than I've seen for no reason because of that. We need to be confronted. You need to be confronted. We also need what's necessary in a prophet is a teacher, right? Jesus, in this example we've read about, had just finished teaching. So Jesus wasn't simply a Old Testament law Bible thumper of the day, though he could do that with the best of them, I think, based on what um, we'll read about or we would read about later in John 8. Uh, but Jesus was also a teacher. He was called teacher. Jesus, when he lost some maybe we could say lukewarm, followers, asks his disciples, are you going to go too? Peter's response, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. A good teacher or a good shepherd, I'll go back to last week's example, he does lead his flock into true good pasture, like actual nourishment right? And that's what a good teacher does, builds up those around him into the likeness of being like a true follower in this case, a true teacher. Some of the realities that we've talked about so far are absolutely found in this passage. If you look back at this passage, 31 through 33, I'll read it again. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. I said earlier, Jesus brought correction. He also brought clarity. A good teacher, someone who helps, is clear. They separate the needed from the unneeded, show you the way. Jesus, in this case, verse 31, drew an actual clear line in the sand. If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. And if it were me in this scenario, being of a fairly timid nature, which I am, I think I would have stopped after verse 31 because that confronting, that pressing in that is so prophetic is exactly what happens in verse 32. I imagine, it, I imagine the scene going completely silent for a second when Jesus says this. It's probably all okay until 32. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, okay? Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that's when the confrontation happens. You can see it in their response. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? And in some sense, End of this section. It's almost as if Jesus, he has, he had a choice here, and uh, you know, it's easy, I think, at least in my sinful nature, to be a little bit of a tap dancer around the truth. Um, you know, if it were me, end of thirty-three. How can you say we should be set free? Well, I mean, in one sense you're free because, but in another sense, you know, we're all kind of slaves because. It, Jesus doesn't do that. He is the prophet. He actually ups the ante. You keep going. Um, <laughs> 34, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So, well, he's calling them slaves. He's also calling them sinners. Later on, he's saying, yeah, you're physically descended from Abraham, but you're not really in line with him Truly. He says later on, God sent me. He calls them in terms of that's what a prophet is, sent by God. Says later on in verse 44, he, he you know, says something not too controversial, I guess. He says, your father, the devil, uh, and you want to carry out his, de- his desires. Um, 47 into 47. You do not belong to God. So he draws a clear line, what's required of them, 31. He presses in. That's very important. Just like sinful areas of our lives need to be pressed in on rather than taking our foot, or the Lord in this case, taking his foot off the gas. And one more thing I want to note in that passage, just verse 31, is he said this to those who were in some sense, on his team, at least superficially, to the Jews who had believed him. And this wasn't simply, and it didn't seem like it's even mostly at all, the religious elite. It doesn't say the Pharisees. It doesn't say the Sadducees. It says just the general Jewish people. Um, So it's not as if Jesus only spoke truth to power, though he did. We get this idea sometimes, I think, that Jesus was only meek and mild to everyone, except the Pharisees, who he just kept hammering. That's not true. Um, Everyone needs to be confronted with the reality of sin. But to the Jews who had believed him so, I mean, he could have sort of left it there. Been okay with the results. He had a good little evangelistic meeting, had a few people raise their hands, and, you know, let's not dig into this too much because we might find they're not really with us. But Jesus was never and is not about optics. He is about true followers, true conversions in this case. Jesus confronted others, and we need to be confronted by the prophetic ministry Of Christ. What else do we need? The final one. We need someone to fight evil, and you, we, you need someone to take the punches that you can't. You need someone to fight evil and overcome evil, and you need someone to take the punches that you can't. One thing that was very true of the true and good prophets in Old Testament history was that very often their ministry was the Lord sending them to confront an evil practice of a surrounding nation or often Israel itself, God's chosen people who were not living as if they were God's people. Prophets, if you think of one of the primary realities of a prophet, it is in some way, fighting, if we can put it that way, what is wrong and evil and ungodly? An example that comes to my mind is often Elijah. I believe it was with King Ahab and Jezebel. What an incredible, incredibly dysfunctional relationship if we can say it that way. Um, the lot of the prophets, like what, what has been reserved for them if we look at most of the prophets? It was to fight evil and to be persecuted, really, if there's one consistent thread about them in terms of what can I count on if I'm reading a prophet or reading about one, let's say, it's definitely controversy. And it is definitely, man, I'm shocked that God put them through that, in a sense. But those prophets, all the, the good ones, not counting the false ones, but the good ones. They followed God honorably, and yet they were simply types or pointers to the ultimate and true prophet, and that is Jesus. Like I said earlier, the other prophets, they're looking ahead. Jesus says, look to me. The difference between Jesus and other prophets as well is that the fact that Jesus was not, is not, Sinful. Jesus never sinned. So Jesus, unlike faulty men, even though they were true prophets, he never gave in to evil. He never returned evil for evil. He stood up, in a sense, to evil. He took the punches you can't. And how did he do that? Well, ultimately, he actually took beating. But Jesus fulfilled the work of a prophet by suffering the most severe of persecutions, and that was the ultimate one, and that was persecution to death, death on a cross. So what's actually necessary in a prophet? We know prayerfully to beware of false prophecy, false teaching, false prophets, most of whom will say, hey, I'm with you, I'm one of you. What's necessary? Well, in a true prophet who is Jesus, we need, you need the truth of God. You need the future told. You need someone to confront you. You need someone to teach you, lead you into good pastures. And you need someone to fight the battles that you can't. And overcome evil, which is what Jesus did in his resurrection. Few other realities real quick about Jesus as a prophet. Some things he fulfilled that are true of all prophets. He did his work in public. He didn't pull punches. And he also performed miracles. And miracles authenticated that this is indeed the work of God. Jesus the prophet, so what then? So what does that mean for us in terms of going forward? Jesus is truly the prophet, and so what does that mean for us? Well, there's a couple things. Two things I want to hammer home to end today. One is we're not in the time of Christ now in terms of his earthly ministry. So he has left us with his word. Have confidence in the prophetic power of God's word. That's number one. So we must have confidence in the prophetic power of God's word in two ways. One, it's clarity. And two, it's efficacy or the fact that it's effective. Those two areas I mentioned earlier, sanctification and evangelism. Well, do we believe that God will actually use his word, his confronting word, his good word, to bring us to a truer knowledge of Christ? Or is that just something we say here and there? Think about that. Perhaps where the rubber really meets the road is in a watching world in seeing others come to know Christ. Do we believe that the message of the gospel is truly effective or all that is really needed to bring someone to Christ, right? And we know that ultimately the power of God through the word, his effective call, effectual call, if God chooses to bring someone, they will be brought to their knees to worship Christ, we know that that's true. But do we live as if that's true? Perhaps a question for you in your own life is, do you live as if you're way over here, you're like too zealous for Christ and you're far too much, you're, just, you're letting the line out of the cage all the time? Or do you live as you're far too timid? And perhaps that would mean you're unconfident, In practical terms, in the authority and the efficacy of the message of Christ. Just think about that. Are you too awake, which I don't think is possible, but I think you get where I'm going. Are you too awake, or are you too asleep? And I would argue for most of us and for most of the church, it's far too asleep. There's a caricature of the church that is, it's a far too dogmatic organization, that it's far too Bible-thumpy, that it lacks any sort of love or compassion, and that is what is turning people away. And perhaps in some cases that's true, but you know, I cannot help but think that that is not really the case in this day and age. I think it's actually the opposite. I think it's due to a lack of a zeal. I think it's due to a lack of a truth being preached. I think it's due to a dulled blade. And I think most modern churches would fall under that category rather than an unloving sort of street preachery way of looking at things. Perhaps there are some still out there, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but, you know, Bob, Mike, and Blanche in some kind of old church that's been around, and they're all 83, I don't think describes the modern actual church. Blanche. Okay, application. So have confidence in the prophetic power of God's word, and two, expect results. Expect results. We've talked about this in regard to prayer. And the same is true in thinking about God's word at work. Expect results and perhaps one last one would be praise God for the results that we can see. Right? I mean, what a tough time in life the last year and a half, two years, whatever. Not going to hammer that home because everyone always talks about it. But think about the fruit that is going on in our church. Certain realities that are going on with young children, amazing. Different media that we have. The pastoral training program that's on its fourth class maybe, I can't remember, third class, fourth class. Different believers beginning to use their gifts even more. Biblical counseling, discipleship. That's incredible. And all that has happened Because those are just various applications of God's prophetic word working.